Something that I think Christians often struggle with is the uh, Christian answer. And what I mean by that is we grow up and we, in Sunday school, we learn the answer, right? And, and we learn the answer to a lot of different questions. And, and so we know the automatic answer is Jesus, right? Who's the, the most important New Testament character? Jesus. And you could go through all these questions, and my kids, like, if I ask them a question, oftentimes they automatically just shout out Jesus. I'm like, wait a second. Let's think about our question first before you start shouting out Jesus. All right? But, but we get used to this idea. And so when we ask the question, what do you put your hope in? The Christian answer is Jesus. And we know that. And it's the right answer. But oftentimes, it's not the answer that correctly describes our heart. And so we ask the question, what do you put your hope in? And what's our answer? Jesus. Well, why do we answer that? Because we know it's the right answer. But is it the answer that describes our heart? I think maybe a better question is, what do you fear? You see, our fears reveal our idols. Or what are you angry about? Our anger reveals our idols. Our anger and our fear reveal our heart. And in particular, the idols that we carry around. So what do you fear? What are you angry about? You see, when our idols are threatened, we get angry and we want to protect it, right? We get angry and we're like, oh no, someone's coming in to, to, to threaten my idol, so I better get angry and protect and stop them from threatening my idol. Or maybe it's fear and you cower in fear and you're like, my idol's being threatened, so I better run and hide and cover up this idol so that they won't even understand or they won't know what my real idol or what my heart really desires. So if you really want to understand what you worship and what you put your hope in, ask yourself, what do I fear and what am I angry about? But when our hope is in Christ, then even when we are threatened, we don't have to fear. Even when we are threatened, we don't have to be angry. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that in all things he has learned to be content. Meaning, and he was writing this in prison. He's in prison for his faith. He's been proclaiming the gospel. And because he's been proclaiming the gospel, he is now in prison. And as he's in prison, he writes that he's learned to be content in all things. He's learned how to have joy in all things, in all situations. Have you learned how to be content in all situations, even when your very own life is threatened? Have you learned how to have joy when your liberties are threatened? When the very freedoms that we believe are inalienable rights, meaning God has given us freedoms as human beings, when those freedoms that God has granted you are, are threatened, can you still have joy? If our hope and faith, 
if what we worship is the freedom itself, then we will be angry and we will be fearful. But if our hope and what we worship is Christ, then even when those freedoms that he has granted us are threatened, we can still have joy. We can still be content in life. John is writing to a group of Christians that are suffering persecution. But not persecution how we think of persecution. When we think of persecution, we think of people being put in prison. We think of martyrs, people who are being killed for the faith, tortured for the faith. And that happened during Nero's time. And and John lived through that. He witnessed Christians being killed for the faith. But now something more devious is happening. It's a persecution that's quiet and subtle and slowly choking out the faith. And that persecution is, you can worship God. Go ahead. But if you don't worship Caesar as well, then you can't be involved in the marketplace. You can no longer buy, sell, or trade at the marketplace. And this type of persecution slowly chokes out the church. Christianity in northern Africa was almost eradicated, and it wasn't through killing Christians. You see, the first century, the first first Jews that became Christians, they suffered persecution, and what happened is Christianity just spread like wildfire. The the very first Christians that were Jewish were persecuted by Jews. They were being killed by Jews, and what happened was all of them fled, but continued to share the gospel, and their faith continued to grow, and so Christianity continued to grow. It's almost as if the enemy found out that that type of persecution didn't work. Instead, will slowly suffocate it. And so Christianity was almost entirely eradicated in northern Africa, not by killing people, but by taxing Christians. It was through taxation, Christians having to pay a higher tax rate, that it started to die and eventually almost completely eradicated from northern Africa. Christianity has suffered persecution in one way or another throughout its entire history. We have been very lucky living in the area and time that we live in. But throughout the history of Christianity, there has always been groups of Christians that have been persecuted either tortured and killed, or slowly suffocated. Because this has been a short period in the history of Christianity, we shouldn't believe that this period of freedom will last. In fact, if history is going to teach us something, it's going to teach us that Christianity, we will face at some point, probably sooner than later, we will start to face some sort of persecution. Now, it might not be 
being tortured and killed for the faith. In fact, most likely, I think it's going to be a slow suffocation. We'll be mocked for the faith. We'll be told we're stupid to believe in such fairy tales. There might be an extra tax. It might be that we're kicked out of the marketplace. Whichever route it goes, we need to begin to prepare. John was writing to a group that was suffering. They were slowly getting suffocated. And so he writes to give them encouragement, and he writes to give them hope, or to remind them of the hope that they have in Christ. And that's what we're going to be studying today, and and that's what he opens his letter with. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 1. It's all the way in the back of your Bible, if you're not familiar with it. We're going to read verses 9 through 20. Last week we covered the introduction, and in the introduction we learned that this was a letter that was prophetic and apocalyptic. So he's writing a prophetic, apocalyptic letter that is all about hope. It's going to encourage us, and the central theme is the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ gives us the hope that we need to suffer. The glory of Christ gives us the hope that we need in order to endure the persecution. He will expand on that idea as we continue into this uh, introduction. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burning, burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, we got a lot going on, so let's dig in. He begins with I, John. So we've already had the introduction, and now it's the introduction to the vision. So we've got the introduction to the letter as a whole. That's one through eight. That's letting us know it's a prophetic, apocalyptic letter. And now we get the introduction to the vision itself. I, John, is a typical prophetic introduction. And and it's typical in uh, prophecy because it helps clarify what's going on. So we know that it's John that this is occurring to. So he begins with I, John, and then he gives himself a description. Your brother 
and partner. So he recognizes that, that they are part of what's called the family of God. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are now part of the family of God. We see each other no longer by other ways of describing ourselves. We see each other no longer as American or African, although we can still see that, but we see something more important, and we see that we are part of a family. You and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's so cool about the family of God, this family that we now belong to, is that each one of us has gaps in our family, in our biological family, I should say. And God uses the body of Christ to fill in those gaps. So my kids have what I believe to be wonderful grandparents, but those grandparents live in the front range, 12 hours away. But my kids also have a huge amount of wonderful grandparents here in the body of Christ. God is using our senior saints to fill in a gap that my kids have because we live 12 hours away from my family. You have gaps in your family. God can use the body of Christ to fill in those gaps. I think of Juanita. She has no children, no grandchildren, and yet... How many grandchildren do you have, Juanita? At least 30 grandchildren. It's so awesome. It's so amazing, isn't it? How God uses Juanita to be a grandparent to so many children. Growing up, my dad, I love my dad. He has come to know Christ. But growing up, my dad was not around. The body, God used the body of Christ to fill in that gap for me. Jen can say the same thing. You have a family right here surrounding you. And each one of us have a gap that we need filled. You are also called to fill in the gap. Who is God calling you to? To be that grandma or grandpa. To be that father figure that a child has missed his whole life. We're part of a family. God has taken us and made us a new family. But not only are we a family, but we are also partners. The word for partner here, the, I should say the root word is koinonia. And that means to fellowship. Now, we misuse this term fellowship all the time. We use it something like this. It was a great night of fellowship last night. And what do we really mean? Last night, we had a good time gathering around together. Man, uh, we've got some new people in the church. What we really need is like a good lunch so that we can fellowship together. And what do we really mean? We just need to build some relationship together. And so we, we misuse this term fellowship as relationship. Now, that's part of fellowship, 
Part of fellowship is enjoying relationship together, getting to know one another, being united in a relationship together. But if that's all we do with fellowship, we're falling short on what fellowship really is. Fellowship means to partner together to fulfill a purpose, to be united in Christ more accurately, to be united in Christ in part and partnering together to fulfill a purpose. Here at this church, we have a purpose that all would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. So the fellowship that we have together, the purpose that we have to fulfill as a church is to share the gospel with those that don't know the gospel and then to help each other and encourage each other to grow in the grace that God has lavished upon us. That is the purpose we are to fulfill. We begin with a relationship. We begin by getting to know each other. But as we get to know each other, we need to be walking together to fulfill this purpose. If we are not striving together, working together to fulfill this purpose, we are not in fellowship. Then we have a really neat country club. We are not a country club. We are not gathered together just to get to know each other and make connections. We get to know each other and we make connections to fulfill the purpose God has given the church, which is that all would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. So, he is a brother in Christ, he's part of the family, and he is a partner, meaning they are striving together in fellowship to fulfill the purpose God has given the church. And they're doing it in the tribulation, which means difficult time, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance. So the tribulation is this difficult time. John is walking. He is a partaker of the difficult times with the rest of the churches. It's not that he's just uh, out on some island enjoying a vacation. He has been exiled on an island because he's been walking in fellowship to fulfill the purpose. There will be hard times. There are difficult times throughout the world, throughout the history of Christianity. There are always some group of Christians that are being persecuted. We should be joining alongside of them, at the bare minimum, praying for them. We need to be praying for the persecuted church, at the bare minimum. So he's a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. This is a reference to... To God's authority. And we are a partner underneath God's authority. And then finally, and the patience, patient endurance. Patient endurance, this kind of means like faithful obedience. And it means to both wait on God and to stand up to evil while we wait on God. We are to stand up to evil while we wait on God. And then he continues, that are in Jesus. So what is it that creates the family? What is it that creates the fellowship? It's our union in Christ. It is because we are united in Christ that we can have fellowship, that we can strive together to accomplish a purpose. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, Christ then clothes you with his righteousness, and we are called in Christ, meaning God no longer sees our sins. He no longer sees our failures. He sees Christ in us. And it is that being in Christ that unites us. It is not political affiliation. 
It is not national affiliation. It is not that we're all football fans, because we all love the Denver Broncos, right? Wait, you guys aren't Bronco fans? All right, never mind. No, it's not those things that unite us. It's being in Christ. And what's amazing about being in Christ is we can overcome a huge amount of diversity. Things that would normally rip the world apart can be overcome because we are united in Christ. So it is being in Jesus that unites us. So he's, uh, he's describing himself, and then he says, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it's because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, because he is faithful to these things, that he is exiled in Patmos. So he's on an island called Patmos. He's there in exile because he's been faithful to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus. Then he describes what's happening. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So in the Spirit, we're not entirely sure what that means based upon the context, and there's a lot of different opinions about what being in the Spirit means. But in that debate, we oftentimes, I think, lose the point. And the point is this is a Holy Spirit-driven vision. That's the point of being in the Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit is driving this vision. It's not that he was uh, doing some extra special Christian thing. It's that the Holy Spirit is the one creating this vision. So he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is a reference to Sunday. This is actually the first... uh, first time we see Lord's Day used, it's not used in the rest of the New Testament, but the early church begins to use it quite frequently. And they call it the Lord's Day because it is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you remember, John was a Jew, and he was a good Jew. So what did he do on Saturday? Saturday was a day of rest. This is where we begin to get our idea of a weekend from. So Saturday was a day of rest, Jews had to work on Sunday. Most of the Christians in the early church worked on Sunday. But they recognized that this was a day that Jesus rose from the dead. And they wanted to use that day not as a day of rest, but as a day to grow in the grace that God had lavished upon them. So they would make it a point to meet together, to encourage one another, and to teach on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So they would gather together before work, and then they would also gather together in the evening after work. This is the idea of our tradition of meeting together in the morning and in the evening. By the way, we do a study through, we're studying through Romans on Sunday evening if you want to come and join us. Now, we just because the early church did it, doesn't mean that we have to do it exactly like the early church did. There's no prescription that says we have to meet on the Lord's Day. But that was their tradition, and it was a tradition based on Jesus rising from the dead on that day, so that day would be a day dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to encouraging each other to grow in the Lord. I think it's a good practice. Maybe it's not every Sunday that we meet. Maybe some churches meet on a Tuesday or a Saturday. 
And I'm not going to debate on which day it is, but we are told that we need to meet together, that we should not neglect the meeting of the saints, as some are in the habit of doing. And it becomes a habit so easily. You know, that fishing trip has been calling. So I'm going to go fish. And then the next week, you know, that, that one friend that I've been trying to witness to, he wants to go on a mountain bike ride. And, you know, I really should be sharing the gospel with non-believers. So, so I'm going to go on that mountain bike ride. And pretty soon, we're only attending once a month, once every other month. And when we neglect to gather together with the saints to encourage each other to grow in God's grace... We become stagnant in our growth. And we are no longer growing in the grace that God has lavished upon us. Not only do we suffer individually from not gathering together, but corporately, everyone suffers when you're not here. God has knitted together the body of Christ. And he has a special assignment for you in the church. And when you're not a part of the church, the church misses the assignment God has for you. God has called you to be a part of the church. He has called you to gather with the saints. He has an assignment for you. Will you fulfill that assignment? So he's gathering, or he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The, the trumpet is symbolic both for uh, war, it was used during war, and it was also used during a coronation of a king. And that's, I think, the point that's being driven home here, is that, that the king is being coronated, and not only is he being coronated, but he is also declaring war on evil, and there will be judgment to come. So, the voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And there's a lot of debate on why these seven churches. Once again, we see seven is a number of completion. So it's not just to these churches, but to the church in general. These, these letters are supposed to go out to the, all of these seven churches and then to, out to the other churches as well. So why these seven churches? One, each one of these churches had an issue that every church kind of struggles with. So it's not just an issue that is locally only this church, but every church has to struggle with these issues. Two is that these churches were made up a communication hub. So the, the way the, mail would, or the letter would go out would follow this circle, but then go out to the other churches as well. So he's writing to these churches, but he's also writing to the body of Christ as a whole. Then I turned. So he hears this voice that sounds like a trumpet. And what would you do if you heard that? You'd turn, right? So he's like, whoa, what's going on here? There's a voice commanding me, commissioning me to write a letter. I better turn around and see what's going on. So he turns around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands. So we're going to get into, we talked in the introduction of when you don't understand something in Revelation, oftentimes keep reading. He'll explain it. That's what's going to happen in the lampstand. So we're going to get to the golden lampstands later. But something I want to highlight is that in the midst of the lampstands, 
one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a reference to Christ. We'll get to that in a second. But it's important for us to highlight where he is. He's not on the opposite end of the building of the lampstands. He's not got his back turned to the lampstands. He's in the midst of the lampstands, signifying that Christ is in our midst. He, we're not deists that think that God created and then left us to our own. We understand that God, Christ, is here actively involved in our life. That helps us through the persecution. That helps us through suffering when we recognize that Christ is here to comfort us in the midst of our suffering, that we can turn towards him, that he has not left us to ourselves. So he's in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. This is a reference to Daniel 7, and the, the, the one like the Son of Man is a messianic figure. So in Daniel 7, they didn't quite understand it. All they understood was really that he was the Messiah. But looking back now, we can see a bigger picture of who this messianic figure is. He's not exactly a man. He's like a man. But he is also the Messiah. And throughout Revelation, he will be contrasted with the beast. Then he's going to give us eight descriptions of the one like a son of man. And each one of these have a numerous amount of Old Testament scripture. So each one of these are a reference to a whole handful. We don't have enough time to go through each one. But what John is doing as he is writing this down is he's giving this church, the churches that he's writing to, a description that they would automatically associate with each one of these. And he's weaving in this beautiful image of who God is, of who this one who is like the Son of Man is, I should say. Now, what we tend to do is we start to get focused in on each one of those because we don't, we don't have that recall like they did. We're not as familiar with the Old Testament. And so we, what we do is we start picking apart every single reference. And I like to say what we do is we have this like engine in front of us, and we start to dismantle the engine. Now, my dad is a mechanic. I have rebuilt several engines with him. I am not a mechanic. I wish I was mechanically inclined. I am absolutely not. If it weren't for my dad, man, those engines wouldn't have even gotten torn apart. But my dad could tear apart this engine. And when I looked at it before he tore it apart, I saw this engine. And then my dad and I would start tearing it apart, and he'd tell me how to do it, and we'd tear it apart. And when it was torn apart, I could no longer see an engine. And it was just a bunch of different parts. We have a tendency to do that with Revelation. And it's important to recognize those parts. Each part put together builds an engine. Luckily, my dad could see the entire engine, and he would bring it all together. And when we were done, there was an engine that would work, and it would make me move. Let's not tear apart the engine and then no longer rebuild it. Let us be able to look at every part and how it builds the engine. So here we go. We're going to read through these eight descriptions. Clothed with a long robe, 
with a golden sash around his chest. Now, what ruler, this is what rulers would have worn and also priests would have worn back in those days. And so what this is a reference to is that Christ is our ruler and our advocate. The priests were the advocate on half of the, per, on half of the people. So Christ is the advocate, but not only is he our advocate, he is also our ruler. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. So white represents wisdom. So we know that Christ is a ruler, he is an advocate who is full of wisdom. But one thing we also have to know is this is also a reference to Daniel 7.9. And what's interesting in Daniel 7.9 is the one who is white like wool, like snow, is Yahweh. Yahweh being the Old Testament name for God, this relational name for God. And what's interesting here is he is connecting Christ with the Old Testament name for God, who is relational with Israel. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This represents him having the ability to see through our masks. He has an immense amount of insight, greater insight than we could ever comprehend. And every mask we try to put on, every facade, every little false identity we have he can see straight through. So he is our ruler, our advocate, who is wise and who is full of insight, who can penetrate no matter how hard you try to put on a disguise, he can penetrate through that disguise. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. These are, uh, the polished part shows that he is his glory and the bronze shows that he has Strength. So it, it represents both glory and strength. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now this, show, this represents uh, the power of his voice. And what I think of is like when uh, Grand Falls is running during monsoon season. And you go there, and if you get close enough, you can't even hear someone talking or yelling right into your ear, right? But also, how much does it carve through the power of water? We can go to the Grand Canyon, and we can see the power of water carving out the canyon. That is what we should be thinking about when we think about his voice being like that of rushing water. It is powerful. So he is our Ruler, he is our advocate who is wise, who is insightful, who is both glorious and powerful and strong. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Holding something shows that you both possess it and protect it. So we see that he is a possessor of us and a protector. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This is representing discernment, meaning he can separate things that we can't even identify as two separate things. Uh, One of the references that we can use for this is Hebrews 4.12, and, you know, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. And oftentimes, people, when we get to the soul and the spirit, people will start to develop some type of theology about 
the difference between soul and spirit. And you're missing the point. I think when we start to ve- developing a soul and a spirit theology, we're missing the point of Hebrews. Well, the whole point of Hebrews 4.12 is that it's so sharp, it can separate things we can't. Things we can't even discern that are two separate things, it can. So as humans, we, can only, we, we only have a, an amount of knowledge that sees a soul and a spirit as one. But the Word of God can separate things so much more than we can. It's so discerning. So that's the point of this two-edged sword. So he is our ruler, our advocate, who is full of wisdom, who has insight, no matter how we try to cover things up. He is glorious and strong and powerful. He holds us, he possesses us and protects us. And he is all discerning. And then we get to number eight. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. This is a direct reference to Isaiah 60, 19, and it is also used for Yahweh. So it is all about Christ's glory. This is a a description of how glorious he is, which is also correlating that he is the Old Testament God in the flesh. It is his overwhelming glory. And so we see that the one who is like the Son of Man is our ruler, our advocate, who has insight into no matter how false we try to put up, he can see straight through our lies. He is glorious. He is strong. He is powerful. He is discerning. And he is glorious. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And this is how glorious he is. So glorious that John just thinks, that's it, my life is over. I'm dead. I'm falling down. I must be dead. He is so glorious. But he laid his right hand on me. This laying of the right hand is both a comfort and a commission. To lay your right hand on someone was to commission them to do something. But it's also a comfort to John, who thinks he's dead. He's laying down. He's so overwhelmed by the glory of Christ. He's laying down as though dead. And the one who can hold the seven stars in his hand puts that same hand on John and says, Fear not. This is the same phrase that was used 60 years ago after the resurrection. This is a comfort to those who believe. Fear not. This glorious being, so glorious that we are overwhelmed by his glory, says, fear not. But for those who don't believe, This is not the message. This is a message strictly for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys to death and Hades. The point here is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is all sovereign over everything and is eternal, unlike those idols that are worshipped. 
Unlike Caesar, who is commanding that you worship him, he is temporary. Caesar is temporary. All those who command our worship, all those idols are temporary. Even empires are temporary. But Jesus is eternal. That's the point. And then he gives them the second commission. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. That's up to this point. Those that, those that are, meaning what he's seen at the exact moment, and those that are to take place after this. So there's going to be four visions in Revelation. So we're in the first vision, then there will be three more vision in this book. He is to write these visions that are going to take place. As for the mystery of the seven stars, ah, I told you we'd get to it, right? We'd get to it. It's going to tell us exactly what this is. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's a bit of debate about what these angels are. I think that they are angels that have been assigned a special project within these churches. I don't want to develop too much of a theology around that. I know some people will develop a whole church angel theology. I don't think we can develop a church angel theology off of this one line, other than we know that there are angels that have been assigned to these seven churches. That's something that we can develop. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands are seven churches, and the churches are lampstands because they shine into a darkened world. The world is full of darkness, full of broken and hurting people who are living in rebellion, shaking their fist against God, and not even understanding why there's so much pain. And as they feel the pain, they just shake their fist all the more, not understanding that it's because of the rebellion. And so the church's assignment, what the church is, is a lampstand, a light into a darkened world. So what is the light that we carry? It's the gospel. That's the light that we have. This idea that every single one of us has lived in rebellion, every single one of us has shaken our fist at God, and because every single one of us has shaken our fist at God, every single one of us deserves eternal separation from our Creator. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all shaken our fist in rebellion and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way, not your way. But God being in so much love with us, who loves us with a, a love that is so much greater than anything we can comprehend, came to this earth and he paid the price for our rebellion. And when he did that, all we have to do to be in correct relation with him is to trust and believe in his works on the cross. That's it. And when you do that, you have been made new, you, are, you then have this perfect relationship with him, and you are called holy and righteous and blameless, that's the gospel. That you can learn how to live in joy even when you're in prison and being tortured for Christ. That's the gospel that shines bright. It is not. The gospel is not political affiliation. The gospel is not having correct church governance. 
The gospel is not standing up for my freedom because it's a God-given right. All of those things are important things. They are important, but they are not the gospel. When we see certain things diminish, when we see a threat to things that we hold dear as a church, things that are important even, and we begin to get angry about them, and we begin to fear that reveals our idol. And in all honesty, I think it's a good thing, because those idols only cover up the gospel. When we turn those good things into the things that we should put our hope in, when we turn those good things into what we actually worship, we have created those good things that God has given us into idols. And as a church, we need to repent of idol worship and turn back to worshiping the one who is our ruler, our advocate, who can see through all of our idol worship, who can see through all of our disguises, who can see through all of our lies, who is glorious and strong and powerful and all discerning, the glorious one, Jesus Christ. May we worship him and find our hope in him. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that you have given us good things, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to turn those things into idols, to enjoy them, but to find our hope and our comfort in you, and to worship not the things that you have given us, but to worship you, who alone are worthy of our praise. In your name we pray, amen.